Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'll read it, and then I'll pray for us and over Christian. Today's sermon that Christian will be preaching comes from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of brothers and sisters who faithfully uh, answer your call to lead and serve the church with leadership. And today I pray over Christian that the work you, Holy Spirit, have done in preparing him as he has meditated and prayed and written and revised and thought uh, he has given himself over to your church this week and weeks before. Uh, and Holy Spirit, he's been submitting himself to you to prepare a good sermon and be faithful. And so as he brings to the church the meal that you've prepared, we pray that, Lord, uh, our bellies would be full of the bread of life. Um, and as Jordan just prayed a few moments ago, that we would receive not merely information about the gospel, about faith, about you, but we would, we would be transformed that those who are not saved would be saved, and those who are saved will continue in their salvation, growing, so they may walk in the good works that you've predestined and prepared beforehand for us. We thank you already for the gift that Christian's bringing to us, and we receive it, thankfully, because of who you are and what you've done. We pray these things to the name and the glory the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. As Matt said, I'm Christian Wall. I'm a deacon here and an elder candidate. Um, today's message is on salvation by faith alone, justification by faith alone. Um, and I have a lot of stuff to get through, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, to catch us up a little bit, these, la or these five weeks that we're in, we're learning about the five solas. Um, and as, we've, uh, as Matt talked about uh, the last two weeks, I'm going to kind of reiterate a lot of the same stuff that he has already said. So these five solas are not a uh, spooky, weird Latin. Uh, this is pretty normal for us as Protestants. These are the five Latin phrases or slogans uh, that emerged during the Protestant Reformation to summarize the Reformers' basic theological convictions about the essentials of Christianity, in particular, our salvation. And all this stuff was in contrast to certain teachings of the Roman Catholic Church of the day. So, if we are professing Christians, we're not Catholics, but we're Protestant, then these five solas are 
undeniable, non-negotiable truths for us. I think you'll find as we read them that you know, we're pretty comfortable for, with what they have to say. So all Protestants agree on, on these five solas. Uh, the first week we went over sola scriptura, that is that scripture alone is our final and decisive authority, uh, which tells us what we learned last week, sola gratia, that is salvation by grace alone, that man is justified by the grace of God alone. Uh, this week, I'm about to go over sola fide, that is by, gra- by God's grace, we are saved through faith in God alone and not by works. <clears throat> Uh, next week, we'll be talking about solus Christus, that is, uh, this saving justification that we're talking about is accomplished by the person and work of Christ alone. And lastly, soli Deo Gloria, that all of this comes from God and is done to the glory of God alone. So, this morning, sola fide, we are justified by God's grace through our faith alone. And some of what I'm going to cover today is going to sound familiar to what Matt talked about last week because grace and faith go together. God's grace, you can think of it as like the rope or safety line to what our faith grasps. So our faith is only grasping onto the safety line that is God's grace. So it's the object and the action. Uh, But before I move on, even though we know what the word faith means. Uh, it's kind of hard to nail down like a real true definition of it. So uh, I'm going to take some time to do that, uh, to get us a good, solid working definition of faith. The one that I'm using is coming from Hebrews 11, chapter 1, which if you're taking notes, you should go read all of Hebrews 11 after this service. But I'll summarize this part that we need right now. <clears throat> faith Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith has two parts to it, two elements in it. It's a little bit assurance and it's a little bit conviction. So conviction is defined as a firmly held belief or having been convinced. Convinced is the root word of conviction. Uh, So to be convinced or to have conviction is to be I am sure or I know. That's one part. And then the assurance, the assurance part is uh, to be sure, to, to have an understanding. Uh, and it's, it's this I'm sure and this I trust, this understanding and, uh, and trusting that go together, right? And you can't have one without the other. We'll see later, uh, there's a passage where James is talking to, uh, talking to the church and he says that even the demons believe and shudder. What he's trying to say is that they have the conviction, but they don't have the assurance, they understand and they, they get the full picture of God, but they don't trust in him for their salvation. And we don't want to be like that. We want to have both. Okay? So, faith is conviction and assurance. Uh, to, to put this back into our context of, of our faith, it is understanding and trust together. In this case, we believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that he can save us, that he has the ability to. And then we believe specifically that his grace can and will save us as he promised. Okay? So that's our faith. Got it. Uh, Next, we want to talk about what justification means, uh, what it means to be saved. What exactly are we saved from? What are we saved into? So this word justification that we're using, it's a legal term. Uh, The root of it is justice, right? 
it's defined as for something to be made right. Uh, but for our uses, I'm going to use it as the opposite of condemnation. So on the one hand, uh, you can be condemned, or on the other hand, you can be justified. So if a house, we know what a condemned house is. If a house, if a house is unfit to live in, it's just broken beyond repair, never going to get it off the market, we condemn it. And for us as human beings, that's what our sin does to us. Our sin shows that we deserve uh, condemnation, and it's the fate of all of us as sinful human beings. But to be justified, to be justified means that that condemnation that we rightly deserved falls on Jesus, and instead we get justification. That's where we want to be. But the common variable there is that we have sinned against God. And we continue to sin against God. That God is holy. I can't think of any, any equivalent in the world today. I know that there's, there's not a lot of sacred things left, but God really is holy and perfect. And to be in his presence, uh, the standard is holiness and perfection. Uh, the problem, uh, our problem, is not that God's standard is too high. For us to be in his presence, like, it's, it's impossible. We would just burn up in the pure, white, hot perfection of God. We can't stand there because of that sin, because of our condemnation. We'll just get blown over. Um, and our problem is not that his standard is too high, uh, because even if I got the controls and I got to lower it myself, how far am I going to bring it down? How far do I bring down the standard of God? Because I can't even, we can't even, meet the lower standard that we set for ourselves. We as human beings, we're internally inconsistent. You could think about it this way. Um, I wear a, well imagine that I wear a tape recorder around my neck uh, my whole life. And it starts recording and stops recording every time I make a statement like, that's not fair, or that's not right, or you shouldn't do that, or you should do this. Every time I make a judgment call like that, we'll just say that it starts and stops recording. And at the end of my life, I'm judged based on that standard that I set myself. Why can't I meet that standard? What's broken in me that I can't do that? I made that up. That's not even a very high court. That's just my own thing. But that's not to say that we don't do some good stuff, um, you know. I'll concede, like there are some good things that we do. We, we have some nice stuff that we can hang our hat on. Um, but if we just examine a little bit more closely, even our righteous acts, as Scripture says, our righteous acts are as filthy rags. But the reason that is is because hiding inside even our righteous acts is more sin, more sin. Fear, for example, or pride or selfishness. Um, I'll just group them neatly into those three. Uh, we do the right thing because of fear. We're afraid of consequences. Something might go bad for us because I did the wrong thing, so we don't want to get caught. Or pride. I do the right thing because I want to look good. I've got an image to uphold. I want to look good in front of other people. We do the right thing because of pride. Or selfishness. I'll do the right thing today, and I'll lose a little bit, but I'm playing the long game. I'll, I'll gain it all back later. We're doing the right thing because of selfishness. So we're trapped. I'm already internally inconsistent, and even the good things that I do can't save me. Even the good things that I do have sin hidden in them. That's a huge problem for me because 
the place that I'm really trying to get to, when I set all that stuff aside, I'm really trying to get more of that peace and security and the goodness and the holiness. I'd like to be there. If I kind of lay aside my pragmatism and, and, and pessimism and I go, what, what if? What if, what, if I, what if I could? I could achieve that one day. I want to be there in God's presence. He is the source of all goodness and grace and justice in the world. Why wouldn't I? I? That's exactly where I want to be. That's where I've been working for my whole life, right? But sadly, in our current form, we just don't belong there. We just don't. And if he decides to go ahead and let us in, then he stops being just. And it stops being that place that I've dreamed of where finally justice will be served. Because if I get in, justice isn't being served on me. So we don't belong. Um, and it's not just because I can't shape up and from here on out I'll really knuckle down and do the right thing. From here on out I'll really, I'll really make a change. Because uh, I can't help all of this sin behind me that I'm dragging along with me. I've left a path of destruction my whole life. And... That has to be answered for somewhere. Who's going to do it? Right? So what can we do about this biggest problem of ours? Even if I solve everything else in my life, if I solved the economy, if I solved racism, if I don't fix this, this biggest problem of ours, then I have no hope. There's no way I can sneak by. Is there a way that I could cross that divide and get into God's perfect and holy space where I'm trying to get to? because it seems impossible. <clears throat> so with that, let's go back to the scripture that Matt just read. <clears throat> this is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So pause. Just like I said before, this is our current situation. We were following something. We're following Satan, although if I... If I step outside right now and just talk to somebody on the street and let them know that they're following Satan, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. Um, they'll outright deny it. They probably, I, I hope they would anyway. Um, but they can understand this other part, this living in the passions of our flesh part, the carrying out the desires of the body and mind. They're following this groove that was carved out by somebody else, and they're just kind of, they're in it like a needle on a record, just kind of following in that, in that groove. And... You know, sometimes they'll feel like they want to get out of it and, and be better. But most of the time, this is easy, to just do this and to hang out in this groove. And that's something that they can relate to. But when we serve ourselves, when we follow this mentality of the world that we just need to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain, we think we're not doing any damage. We think, this is fine. Nobody's getting hurt. As a matter of fact, it feels really good. And I'm avoiding a lot of really bad stuff. Uh, but we're hurting ourselves and other people in the process because there's a long list of things that feel great and are awful for us. At the top of it's maybe like heroin. Uh, I, I do not hear that it is bad. I hear it's really good. Um, not so good afterwards. But like I said, that's at the top of a very long list of things that are awful for us that feel great. 
and painful things that are actually really good for us. Um, I just worked out again for the first time in six months. You can imagine how I probably feel right now. Um, feels awful, but I knew that it was the right thing for me. It's good for me to be healthy, to be in shape. It's important. I can't just follow this mantra of the world to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And those are just some cute examples that I came up with, but it's very serious when, when this stuff results in sin and hurting other people, no matter how far removed you are from it. But let's get back to the scripture. We need to find some hope in here. So back in verse 4, some of you know where this is going. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is incredible news. In case you didn't get all that while we were reading it, this is the unimaginable solution to the problem that I described before. We didn't think, we, we, all we were thinking about is how we were going to get in, how we were going to get past that divide into the, into the holiness and goodness on the other side. We never imagined that the solution would come from that side of the divide. But as we saw, of course it would. That scripture had nothing to say about what we do, right? God, in his grace and his mercy, took it upon himself. It wasn't his problem. It was our problem. We got ourselves there. He took it upon himself to cross that divide and, 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 and put forward his grace and his mercy on us. So instead of condemnation that we deserve, that condemnation goes on to Jesus, and we get justification. We're clean. We're finished. Not only did he wipe out that record of debt behind us and erase that path of destruction that we've carved through the world, but he rejoices in us not just tolerates us and, okay, you watch it now. Now we're celebrated and loved and welcomed in, and we have a seat at his dinner table, right? I want to take a second to just pray and, and thank God for that. So please join me before we continue. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that my sin, that I was never, ever going to chip away at and, and fix. Lord God, I was headed for condemnation. We all were. Uh, you instead took it upon yourself to save us because of the great love with which you loved us. Um, Lord God, your love is incredible. No one loves like you do. No one has mercy like you do. No one is gracious like you do. Lord God, please help us to understand how to have faith in that grace to, uh, to live the life that you have prepared for us the good works that you've called us to walk in. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so that was sola fide, the best I can explain it. I hope that that was clear because I want to change gears a little bit now um, because faith is invisible 
and we don't spend a lot of time uh, thinking about it because we have other things to do. We've got to go and, and act. And this is one of those places where it's easy for the church to drift away. And that's why I think the church has drifted away, is in this area of what do we do now? So we've been saved. I, I, I get faith. I might not be able to define it with words, but I get it. I, I know what it is. So let's talk about that, our works. What should Christians live in now? And how does it affect our justified status before God? And this is where that confusion comes in between us and, uh, and the Catholic Church. This is one of the, the core reasons why the, we became the Protestant, uh, the Protestant faith. So I think that we can get confused sometimes because in that scripture, it phrased it really specifically. We went from death to life, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like I was dead before because I was... I was living, I was active, I was making choices and decisions. It didn't feel like I was dead. And now it says that I'm alive, and I do feel different in some ways, but in a lot of ways it feels the same. That's not the case for everybody. There are a lot of Christians I know that um, their faith was a dramatic change in their life. They were in cycles of addiction and abuse and pain, and all of it changed in a moment, and it was really beautiful. Um, but for me and for others I know, uh, there wasn't really a time we didn't know God for forever and always. I think I was saved at four years old, um, which is great. But, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to know what my faith really means because I didn't experience that dramatic change that that scripture explained, right? But either way, whether I was saved this way or that way, uh, I still find myself living a, a regular, normal, real life and sometimes wonder if any change actually took place at all. I mean, of course it has, because my appetites are different. Um, I'm, I hate my sin. I want to be better. I want more of God. Um, but we, we still go wrong in that area of works, this area of what we do now. So in order to, to break them down as best I can, I've broken them into two main categories and I gave them a little math equation for us to understand the difference between the two of them. So one way that we go wrong is we think that it's our faith plus our works that equal our justification, that I must work to contribute to my justification. So this person might say something like, oh, I know that God said that I was justified by grace through faith alone, but I know that I still need to earn my place in his presence. I was pretty bad and I need to work off some sin. I need to be very Christian in order to not be uh, how I used to be. So faith plus works equals justification. This is one error. And then the other that I want to talk about is that faith just equals justification. Okay? I can disregard the commands of God because God's grace has saved me. This person might say something like, well, I'm obviously saved already. I know I still live like everybody else but that's what grace is all about, right? I'll just go get some more on Sunday, and God wouldn't want me trying to work for his love, right? So they believe that there's no works in there. It's just faith equals justification done, okay? So we'll start with the first error and try to, try to debunk that. So error number one, faith plus works equals justification. So this error is my personal one. Um, 
I think it's really easy to fall into this one because this is how all other human relationships and identities work, is that um, I am what I do, right? And I just became a woodworker this last year. I feel the need to say hobbyist woodworker because, I mean, my, my skill level and the level of what I produce. I mean, you tell me, if I say that I'm a woodworker and I tell you that I only made a cutting board, am I a woodworker? Uh, you guys are very kind. You're very gracious. Thank you. Um, some people would disagree. There are some gatekeeping fine woodworkers out there that would, you know, hey, buddy, come back next year. Make a chair. Make a table. Make something else. You know, get, you know, uh, really come back next year when you've really done something, you know. And, and you know, that in some ways they're right. But... That's not how our relationship to God works. Um, in this scripture, it uh, described it in, a, in very clear ways that imagine I hadn't even made the cutting board. Do I get to call myself a woodworker then? But that's how, that's the radical nature of our justification before God is that I haven't done anything yet. And my faith in his grace is all that it took. And I'm done. I'm, I'm saved before him, right? But I don't, maybe I'm one of these people that doesn't feel comfortable with that, and so I'm going to fall back to, my, back to my nature, and I'm going to think, no, if I'm going to be a woodworker, I've got to work wood. I've got to do it. And if I'm a Christian, then I've got to do Christian-y things. I've got I've to do the stuff. And if I open up my Bible right now, I can find plenty of stuff to do to justify me before God. I'll probably find the Ten Commandments first, but they are just in the very beginning of another 250-plus other commands that God gave his people Israel. There's a whole system of sacrifice in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It involves the shedding of blood to account for sin, animals' blood, uh, and other sacrificial washings and all that kind of stuff. There's burnt offerings, there's peace offerings, there's sin offerings, there's guilt offerings. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to disparage the law of God either. Because the law of God was perfect, absolutely perfect in what it was. However, it was never the ultimate solution, okay? There were people saved before the law came about, and there were people saved afterward, but never through it. As a matter of fact, we are the key reason that it doesn't work, okay? In Romans 8, which I encourage you to write down and go look at that too, along with Hebrews 11. In Romans 8, Paul says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He had to intervene because we weren't enough, okay? So the law is perfect. We are not. But God would never give us an imperfect solution, okay? And I want to I prove that through the Old Testament. I want to show some of these places where God showed that it was never really supposed to be that way. I, I could have used Galatians 2 or Romans 3. You should write those down and also go read those. But I love the Old Testament, and I wanted to use this to show that it's always been the case. Old Testament God and New Testament God are the same God, okay? So I'm going to start in 1 Samuel 15. These may or may not be on the screen, but I'm going to go through them quickly anyway. You'll, you'll get the point. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, King Saul was given a command um, from God, which he disobeyed, in order to give God a very grand sacrifice, and his prophet Samuel calls him out and corrects him using the words of God. Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Another situation similar in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Um, Amos, is going, uh, Amos is going to the king in Jerusalem and says the words of God, Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. It's very strong language there. Even more so in uh, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is a person who is wondering, uh, what can I do to please you, God? Uh, he says, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's the response from God. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Here's the last one, even though I think we get the point. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. I forgot the last part of that scripture. He says, for in these things I delight. I love that part. So notice that in all these examples, a lot of these people are people that were obeying God, following his law, doing the sacrifice they're supposed to do, following the law as it was described. And they're checking the boxes, and still God is displeased with their action. Why? It's like God, as a father, as our father, is pulling us to the side for a moment when we're in a, in a you know, flurry of action, when we thought that we were doing a great job and he says to us, you're doing this all wrong. You already have my love. Why are you trying to earn it? And he's saying the same thing to us today. However, he described a lot of other actions in those scriptures. There's a lot of not this, but that. He says, for instance, obey, listen, do justice, Love righteousness, love kindness, walk humbly, understand and know God. Now, if our heart is not changed, then we can still take those actions and we can think that we can earn a gold star from God and just make a new checklist. A new checklist with these new items, and it can just be joyless action all over again, just checking the box. So even though I'm not supposed to try to earn God's love through works, I'm also not supposed to set down my tools because, you know, even though we set out to debunk that works is involved in our justification, I still see works here. So if we put that equation back up on the screen again, this faith plus works equals justification, I don't feel comfortable yet taking the works part out 
because it's pretty clear works are still important. But maybe it just doesn't go there. So, but let's try it. Let's try it anyway, okay? Even though it's pretty clear that I can't separate my works from my faith, that they, they are absolutely supposed to be coupled together, let's look at the other error and just take works out for a second and imagine faith equals justification. And that was, again, that I can disregard the commandments of God because God's grace has already saved me, okay? So for that, we're going to go to James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And I love the book of James. It's very practical. It's very down to earth. And uh, this part is no different. Uh, James here is talking directly to this guy who believes faith equals justification. And he's going to show him exactly why he's wrong in no uncertain terms. So let's read it. James chapter 2, starting in 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Pause for a second. Remember earlier when we said what faith is made up of? Understanding and also trust. That's what he's talking about right there. The demons understand and do not trust. We want both. Let's continue. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay. So he did just uh, contradict my main point of the sermon in that verse, and we're going to deal with it. So, according to James, it is impossible to have absolutely no works and to still claim that faith is in there somewhere, okay? He goes so far as to say that a faith with no works is no faith at all, okay? So what we take him to mean is that we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. I'll say that one more time. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone, okay? So our works are not what saves us, but it's what we are saved into, which might be sound a little peculiar, but that agrees with what we read in Ephesians 2 in the very beginning. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So, the equation for our justification is not faith plus works equals justification, and it's also not faith equals justification. Okay? So the one that I think I'm going to land on is faith equals justification 
plus works, okay? And Matt and I went back and forth a little bit about, if you could put it up on the screen, uh, whether or not it should be faith equals justification plus works, because the plus sign kind of implies, like it doesn't, it doesn't imply the, uh, that justification comes first and leads to works. But I'm not good at math, so I don't know what the appropriate symbol ought to be. I would want to use like a comma or maybe like a colon. So faith equals justification. I want to say plus works. So I feel like that's the neatest one. I'm going to use a plus sign. Faith equals justification plus works. So James had more to say, though. That he's, he's using this, this works, using the works as a reliable sign to discern if a person is saved or not. Um, you can use it to discern if other people are saved or not. You can also use it on yourself, right? And this might sound familiar to us if we're familiar with our Bible because Jesus talked about it too. He just used a different word. We've said works a lot, but fruit is a synonym here, fruit and works. I almost think that fruit really is the more appropriate term here because fruit has this added sense in it that it's coming from a source, so works I can probably do without God. Fruit, however, can only really be done, empowered through God, through his Holy Spirit, through his grace, right? So using that word fruit instead, uh, let's go look at Jesus' words to, to, to see and help us round out this picture. Because this is our problem, is we want to do works that glorify God without trying to use them as a means of our justification, so let's look at this fruit analogy, and we'll start in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Here, Jesus is doing the same thing that James did, uh, using it as a warning, okay? So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is here saying that fruit is something that everyone produces universally. Saved and unsaved, we're all producing fruit. And he's saying that fruit is not always good that it is helpful to help us recognize and avoid the influence of those people whose fruit is bad. Even if they have really nice things to say, look at their fruit and it will tell you very plainly what kind of a heart it was coming from, what kind of a person empowered that. Okay, so we know about the bad fruit. Let's see, let's find another example of the right kind of fruit because that's what we're looking for. We want to do the right kind of fruit out of the right kind of heart. So, Moving quickly to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> and this is the scripture we will land in. So, John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Already you are clean because of the words I have spoken to you. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So, that is a very rich, dense text. Not going to be able to unpack it all, but our main point is right, right in there, that producing good fruit only comes from our relationship to God and his love. I'm going to read that one more time, that producing good fruit only comes from our relationship to God and his love. So God did not reach over that divide that we described before. He didn't reach over it just once to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, and then we just go on our merry way. There is an element to that. It did happen that quickly. He did justify us in a lightning strike moment, and he dealt with our sin debt, but it doesn't end there, right? We are still fully connected, totally dependent on him, okay? There's no situation where we're just released from his supervision and we remove the training wheels. He's still reaching over the divide and he has us in his grasp, okay? That faith that saved us in a moment, it doesn't go anywhere. It saves us day after day after day for the rest of our lives. So the main point of my sermon here is that we are justified through faith in God's grace alone. But then that same faith empowers the whole rest of our life in Christ, okay? He used strong language in that, in that passage that he said to abide. To abide is not just to rely on God in a service station kind of way where we just like pop in when the light comes on, but then we, we head back out. There's no point in our lives as Christians where we, we hit this point of strength and self-reliance where we've got it and we rely on him less and less and less He's the vine, and we're described as just a branch on that vine, which I understand can be difficult, especially for people like me who don't want to rely on anything. I don't want to need anything, right? I feel comfortable, or I feel uncomfortable when people pay for me at restaurants or when they give me gifts and I don't have anything to give them back. I feel far more comfortable just earning, right? And I like to be self-reliant in most of my relationships, but that kind of attitude is dangerous in the Christian life directed toward God, right? If we aren't careful, and if we just comfortably fall into this earning position, then all that stuff that we call self-reliance and maturity can turn into independence and separation from God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, I think, it's described as hewing out our own cistern. Jesus is the fountain of many waters. We're supposed to stay there, not go anywhere else, not get a cup full and walk away, 
and not hew out our own cistern. And he says, we're supposed to just stay there, right? Before we know it, we'll start taking our identity from our works and rather than God's, right? I'm doing a lot of really great works. I haven't heard from God in a while. I'm doing my own thing. Suddenly, I think that this came from me. Suddenly, I think I'm doing pretty good on my own, and I haven't spoken to him in a while, right? So that's not even to mention the way we'll look at other people, right? When our righteousness is in ourself, we start looking down on other people that haven't reached our level of Christianness or spirituality, right? We want to, in everything, never, ever forget where our salvation came from. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we were headed for condemnation, right? But because of God's grace, that condemnation goes on Jesus, and we have been saved. We have been justified, and now we fully rely on him in faith every day. So, I want to leave us with a couple application points of how we can stay on track, because we don't want to be like those people in the Old Testament that only found their salvation in works and went wrong, but we also don't want to be like those people that don't try to do anything and just go about life as usual, okay? So I've got four points. This is all under the heading that faith produces fruit, okay? So my first point, look for a change in your desires. Don't just do and never examine what you do, or don't just kind of vaguely want and never examine what you want, Look back at Ephesians 2. Look at that language of following the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body and mind. Ask yourself, are you just maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain? We can go back to that as our default, but that ought to be a warning sign. We ought to be the ones thinking about that and considering if we've fallen into that trap again. Because as we're saved by faith and we abide in Christ, our desires and our appetites will shift more and more to what God wants rather than what we want. And we just desire more of the things of God. So if that is not you, uh, then change it. Find out what God wants and go and do that stuff instead. And you can't find out what he wants if you don't spend any time with him. Point two in faith producing fruit. Are you resting in God's finished work? So we are commanded to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Today is Sunday, right? And we want to ask ourselves, do we believe that the most important work is already finished in Christ? If so, that should relieve a lot of anxiety for us, right? But if not, we might feel this need still to achieve and be the best and to work hard and to earn my place in the world, right? If we think there are more important things to be accomplished, then we'll never be finished. And rest might just be impossible for you. And you might think, I don't want to go pray right now because there's more important things that I should be doing. Or I don't want to take a break. I don't want to just rest in God because, you know, I've got, I've got things to accomplish, real things. If you think that there's still something left to accomplish and the final best, most worst problem that you have has already been solved in God and you need to do more important things, then uh, you're still in Ephesians 2 and your work is never going to be finished and you probably shouldn't take a break because, you know, you got to get to that salvation. 
But if we're really abiding in Christ and his grace and love, there is no better use of our, of our time than to rest in God's finished work. Two more. Point number three, where does this strength come from? Where does your strength come from? God's people are not people that are strong in ourselves. We're weak, weak people, and God is strong. In our weakness, God is strong. God's people hide under his wing, it says in the Psalms, right? God's people are not self-sustaining. We don't summon up the strength. We live next to the fountain. We're just a branch on the vine, and there's a constant flow of love from him that just naturally produces fruit in our lives, okay? So we're just a conduit. In, in that case, do we, how do we pray to him, right? Do we pray to him as like strong people and this is more for you than it is for me, God. I'm just checking in. Um, I've still got my stiff upper lip on, right? I just pray some very theologically correct statements. You are God. You are so holy. I've got other things to do. Or do we really come to him and cry in that futility that we live under? Do we really ask? Do we really long for strength? Do we come to him in weakness? Or do we imagine that we just have all the answers? Okay? If we understand how weak and helpless we are compared to God, then we will pray. We will pray constantly and we'll pray vulnerably and seek wisdom from him rather than making it up for ourselves. And my last point, uh, faith producing fruit. Whose fruit are you producing? We will all produce fruit. It's just a matter of what kind we ought to examine it. The fruit that the world will produce is bad fruit. It's empowered by following the course of this world, right? But our fruit is produced by our faith in God's grace in Jesus, okay? So we do not just produce fruit for fruit's sake. We do not act like we have all the answers and just keep automatically churning out what I think is the right thing. We should go straight to God, go to God, Inquire before him. Ask him what he wants us to do. And really that involves making space to listen to him. Sometimes we'll pray for five minutes and then just get up and then walk out. When we know that if we sat there for one minute more or five minutes more, he probably had something to say. He probably had something to call us to. So I would encourage you to do that. If we're really going to abide in the vine, if we're really going to be people that are not just saved by faith, but are empowered and abide in the faith of God, our lives should be different and should be fruitful. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word this morning. Um, I pray that it has been helpful. Lord, I pray that you've been glorified. I pray that as we produce fruit in our lives, that it would be fruit that abides. Lord, I pray that we don't just try to be independent from you and try to run on autopilot and, and go off the last you know, thing that we read months ago. Lord, I pray that we would live next to you and take all of our power, all of our strength from you, all of our love from you, and just give it away to others. Lord, I pray for fruitfulness in our lives and conviction in our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.